How you guys doing today, Magic Family? It's your host, Mark Karaki. Excited to bring you yet another episode of the podcast. This week, I had the distinct honor and privilege of sitting down with Miss Tracy Turner, founder and chairman at Copia, which is bringing e-commerce to the largest neglected consumer market in the world, rural Africa. Tracy is a juggernaut of a human being. How else would you describe somebody who's competed in six Ironmans, completed 11 marathons, and who has the audacity to believe that such a seemingly intractable problem of connecting rural Africa to e-commerce is possible. And in her spare time, she managed to become one of the top 100 fundraisers for a presidential candidate, while at the same time raising a family of three young children. Tracy is one of those individuals who eviscerates all our excuses. Launched in 2013, Copia Today employs 1,200 people and is now embarking on a regional expansion beyond its home country, Kenya, into neighboring Uganda and beyond. This has all the hallmarks of becoming the Amazon of Africa with a soul. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, Tracy. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you. I've been looking forward to this. And, you know, as I was kind of doing my, my research about you and learning more about you, I was just, with every single sentence I was reading, I was just, I was just more and more in awe <laughs> and, and somewhat uh, pleasantly intimidated, almost challenged, I would say. So your background is stellar. So um, tell us where, you, where, we, where are you sitting today? Where are we chatting to you from? Ah, uh, well, today I am in London. Um, my husband's English, so we're spending a couple of years living here. Nice. Uh, and we've thrown the, thrown the kids in the deep end in British school, which has been a fun, exciting <laughs> chapter for them. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where did you come from? Were you San Francisco originally? Or yeah. So originally, I grew up on the East Coast of the United States. Mm-hmm. And then um, I went to graduate school at Stanford. So I ended up in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. which is... Um, you know, obviously a phenomenal place to be an entrepreneur um, and started a couple of companies there before uh, founding Copia, um, which is obviously a very long way from where Copia launched in Nairobi, Kenya. Right. <laughs> so the background there is um, when I was in uh, university, um, I lived and worked in Nairobi mm-hmm. uh, and um, just sort of fell in love with with Kenya, with emerging markets, with the just incredible opportunities you see all around you um, in places like Kenya. And so when, um, yeah, when I started Copia or kind of birthed the idea, um, Kenya was sort of the logical place for me to to launch the business. So I was based in, San Francisco, but everyone else on the team was in in Nairobi on the ground. Interesting. And so you moved from San Francisco to London. Uh, and what's that transition been like? Somebody, you know, west coast of the US and London's obviously the weather is different, but what 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 are some of the <laughs> what are some of the other changes you've experienced in that in that move? Yeah, the weather's definitely different. <laughs> um well it's it's Phenomenally great for me um, as the the founder and the chairman of Copia to be much, much closer to the team in East Africa, um, 
to be much closer in terms of time zones. It's incredibly difficult to work in San Francisco um, in anything to do with Africa, just because right. day is night, night is day. It's 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 tough from a time zone standpoint. Um, but being in London, it's only a couple of hours. It's a much much easier flight commute. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's like down the street practically. <laughs> Compared to San Francisco, it feels a bit down the street. Yeah, every time I make 100%. that, every time I make that trip to to the Bay Area, I I steal myself. I have to, you know, really get ready for that long haul. Um, and it's yeah, but it's worth it. You know, I mean, the Bay Area is just such a incredible place in terms of you know innovative thinking and resources to support entrepreneurship and you know, investment, you know, capital to get businesses off the ground. Networks. It's, you know, it's obviously it's a, it's a unique place in the world. And, you know, one of the things I think that's, um, you know, lucky for Copia is that we can kind of tap those resources. A lot of our um, angel capital, when we were first getting the business off the ground, came from Silicon Valley and the the kind of belief there that I think it's possible. You know, if you can, <laughs> yeah, and you can think about problems in a different way, um, and bringing that, bringing those expertise and that kind of mindset to, um, to the to the challenge Copia is um, trying to tackle is 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 really helpful getting the business off the ground. Fantastic! You're kind of getting ahead of some of my questions, so I'm going to pull you back into yeah. into the narrative. So, you know, I was looking at your background, and but I mean, fascinating engineering and economics degree from Dartmouth, Stanford MBA, eleven Ironmans, six marathons, founded four companies. So basically, you're the female answer to Tony Stark. Maybe the billions are yet to come. <laughs> So, so the, the question begs, what did you want to become when you were growing up? What was that in your mind's eye? What were you trying to become? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I would say growing up, I, I definitely was um, sort of one of those who was always running for student council president. You're and, one of those, you know, Tracy? Oh, my gosh. I wanted to run stuff. <laughs> I like, I think I like bossing people around. I'm not sure I had any good leadership skills at the time, but I sort of liked the idea of, you know, being in charge, being in charge of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know what I definitely did not have a clear path to what career I wanted to pursue. I loved math. I loved physics. I love, I love numbers. I love spreadsheets. Um, so I think that's how I ended up in engineering. Um, and I had, I definitely had a stint of wanting to be a, um, an astronaut. I definitely had a stint after Top Gun came out where I wanted to be a fighter pilot. But back then, you know, women weren't allowed True. to be fighter pilots. You weren't allowed to fly. When, in the when Navy. did that change? Um, soon after I finished university. So I was kind of my mid twenties. Yeah, I remember going to, I interviewed at the Naval Academy and they were super excited for me to be there because I was a woman and there weren't that many women at the time. And then they said, oh yeah, but you can't, you know, you can't actually be a fighter pilot because you're a woman. And I said, well, what the heck then? Why do you, why are you excited for me to be here? And they said, this is what they said. They said, because you can 
do a job that then enables a man to go be a fighter pilot. Okay. <laughs> and I and I just I got up and walked out of the interview. No way. <laughs> my dad was with me. I was whatever, 17 or 18 at the time. My dad was with me and he was so excited and proud, you know. And then I got up and walked out and was, you know, had to apologize profusely for my rudeness. But <laughs> but thank goodness the world has changed quite a bit since then. I could just see the the, the, the the image of your dad just trying to keep up with you as you're moving through your teenage years. Look at the take over the world. <laughs> Apologize to everybody. <laughs> but that's fantastic. You know, so there's this phrase that I came across, you know, um, your, your, your profile, even when we're doing your research. And I don't know if this is your quote or a belief you hold. Basically, it's capitalism is the sharpest tool in the shed for ending global poverty. Did you come up with that? Did you, or is that a belief you hold, you, you read somewhere? No, I think I I think I wrote that. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I don't think that that's a universal belief, but for me personally, um, I think that the, the, the best of capitalism, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Is quite, quite powerful. It sort of feels like if you can find a business model, um, that is a, a, a profitable model that at the same time is, is addressing a social challenge, then you're swimming downstream, totally. right? It's, it's just, um, you know, it, there are lots of for-profit business models, like Ben and Jerry's was one of my role models when I was kind of going through uni and business school. And I just thought, oh, like, you know, Ben and Jerry is a body shop. These guys are amazing. Um, but Ben and Jerry's basically would sell you a pint of ice cream and then take some of the profits and donate it mm -hmm. to charity, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. It's a fantastic model. That's great. But that's not actually using capitalism. Like it's not inherent in the ice cream that social change is happening, mm -hmm. if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, with you know, Copia's business model, we're at, we actually, you know, every additional thing that we sell, every additional um, you know, sale we make, every customer we serve, um, more positive social change happens. So I feel like, you know, to the extent that you can find business models that do address social challenges, you're, you know, you would, it's a win-win. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's, it's an interesting conversation because it depends on how you define, uh, capitalism, but each business is, is a business unto itself and it has its, its, real, its own dynamics. I'm a, I'm a believer that, you know, you should create value and, and, and capture value and distribute value fundamentally. So I'm a, I'm a believer in that. The question I always ask myself is, is the current version of capitalism, right? The way it's practiced today, not everywhere, right? Not, is it complete or is there room for further evolution of capitalism as a concept? And maybe some people are ahead of the curve in terms of thinking about where capitalism needs to go in terms of how it measures success or, you know, how it thinks about how it creates value. What's your, what's your, what's your take on that? Is capitalism finished evolving or is there room for improvement? Oh, it's, it's incredibly fascinating right now, right? Seeing how, um, corporations, private sector businesses are reacting to things like the, the crisis in the Ukraine and. Yes you know, when, and, and, you know, and the, the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter movement, and you're seeing more corporate activism 
And now with the ESG mm -hmm. component growing, you know, exponentially, um, businesses now have, you know, their shareholders are demanding ESG um, requirements and, and standards, et cetera. Um, I think that we're entering sort of a new era where businesses can't ignore their social impact. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, but, but, you know, it's, um, capitalism itself is not the solution to the world's problems, right? Mm -hmm. It's not what I'm saying. I mean, there's certainly, um, you know, uh, situations where you, you need, um, nonprofit organizations to solve the problem. You need government organizations mm -hmm. to solve the problems. You need regulation right. to keep capitalism in check. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's certainly not the only tool in the shed and not the, the, you know, we need all of them to address many social challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's the one that gets me out of bed in the morning and excited to do what I do. And so, you know, all I've started three, three for-profit businesses that have all been uh, for-profit, but with some social um, mission aligned with the business model. Makes, makes total sense. Um, and you know, I was looking at, at these businesses and all of them, for, for example, I think your first one was for charity. Was that, was that your first? Your first? Yeah. And, and so it, it, I was kind of, okay, there's this social element and I was like, okay, she, you're taking uh, almost like a, capitalism into the domain of charity nonprofit kind of sector, which is very cool. So what motivated each one of these ventures for charity, kickstart, microplace and Silicon Valley microfinance network, you know, what, what, what's a thread that cuts through these things? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I mean, there, there, there were all, um, yeah, the, just like aligning kind of my personal um, interest in for-profit models that are affecting change. So the, so for example, for charity was born at Stanford business school with, um, one of my classmates, Scott Dunlap. Um, and it was basically the like web 1.0 days. Like <laughs> there was no such thing as PayPal or Venmo or you know, right. so it was, you know, how do you donate to a charity online? Like there was no way to do that mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. Like there was no Eventbrite or like there were no tools to sign up to, to participate in a charitable event. Um, you know, all the, all the tools that kind of now exist didn't exist back then. So we essentially built this business to enable charitable giving um, to happen easily, you know, with a click of a button online, which sounds quaint now, but back then, you know, 1999, it was a big deal to, to be able to do that. So we thought we were, you know, changing the world. And I think to be honest, that business was probably, you know, five or 10 years too early to market. Time, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. I was, um, you know, kind of this young female entrepreneur running around to these big, um, nonprofit organizations saying, Hey, you should you know, use my service because I can enable your donors to donate to you through your website, which I know you don't have yet, but we'll help you build a website. 
right? Pretty cool. And pretty cool proposition. You know, you're volunteers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just it was a tough sell because wow. it was just they weren't ready right. to make the leap. Timing so it was everything. a good lesson. Yeah, a good lesson early in my career about like you know the the right time to um, time to market is Huge. very important. Mm -hmm. So you can be first to market. That's great, right? Um, but is, it, is but the market ready for early, you? <laughs> right. Exactly. Fantastic. Exactly. Yeah. So final question on, on some more personal stuff. So how do you balance being a CEO of a cross-global continental company, you know, startup, right? With, which is very different than an established company, I would imagine. Uh, with a family of three children, a husband, how do you, how do you manage this? Yeah. Um, not well is the short answer. I mean, I think that the the challenge that working moms have that you know you often read about or feel or sense in your friends and colleagues and so forth, it's it's real. Like the the feeling like you're not doing anything well, feeling like you're never there enough for your kids and you're never there enough for your company is a real it's a real challenge. And quite frankly, I don't have a good answer for it. Um I think the the things that keep me um, positive and feeling confident I'm doing the right thing is that I think my kids admire what I'm doing. Awesome. They know that moms. They, they know mom's an entrepreneur. They know mom's built a big company. They know mom's, you know, changing the lives of people in Africa. They know that mom is bringing, you know, people from. California, from Europe, from, you know, across, across uh, a lot of countries who don't necessarily interact with anything in Africa and bringing them together. Like, I think that they, they get that they're old enough now to appreciate that. Um, they're 12, 11 and nine at, at the moment. Um, and so when mom has to go on a trip for a week, to, you know, scout out a new country where we're potentially expanding. They, there's a, they're, they're like day-to-day -day frustration, like where's mom and why isn't she here to help me with my school lunch or whatever. But underlying that, they, they I think it gives me a lot of um, pride and happiness that I'm raising them in a way where they see mom has a career. Awesome, fantastic. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I have two girls, 13 and 14. And when I when I, I, I lived at the barrier for a long time, if you listen to my podcast, maybe you you know that. So that's where they were born in California, in the barrier. And uh, you know, I, I made the move here and they moved. They were going to move to Kenya as well, just to get some school experience and be exposed to the culture. Uh, and so we were here for two and a half years with them. And they saw me launch Impact Africa Network and they saw me build it from our living room with six uh, interns, innovation fellows, we call them, to what it is today. Um, and I completely relate to that. It was always about setting an example and then seeing the work you're doing, making a difference. And there they can be like, okay, we can move back to, now they live in Houston and we're okay with that because there's a bigger purpose, you know, that that's involved. So I, I, I completely relate to that. Okay. Let's, let's move now to like Copia and all the cool stuff that you guys are doing there. So what is Copia and what problem are you guys solving and, and where did the idea come from? 
Right. So Copia is essentially an e-commerce business. But what makes us unique is we are specifically targeting the mass market in Africa, meaning middle-income, low-income Africans. So not, not wealthier people who live in urban centers and can access kind of traditional Western-style e-commerce like an Amazon-type business model. This is more people who live um, outside cities in more rural areas and have... Um, you know, are, are buying more kind of basic essential household goods. So it's a lot of food, um, you know, sugar, flour, rice, fast moving bar consumer soap, goods plastic chairs. Yeah. Fast moving consumer goods. Um, maybe a radio, maybe a, a simple kind of entry level phone um, that, you know, some, they're all farmers generally, mm. even if it's, you know, that not their main job, but um, so they're buying agricultural inputs, um, construction, often they're building their house one brick at a time. Mm -hmm. So it's some construction materials. It's basic goods that um, a family in a, like a middle income or a lower income household would need. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, so. where did the idea come from? Because it takes some understanding of how Africa works to even come with this idea. <laughs> Where did it come from? What problem were you yeah. trying to solve initially? My co-founder, Jonathan Lewis, and I were having hot dogs in San Francisco for lunch one day and noodling on a couple of different ideas. Um, I was working on a few different business plans, kind of fleshing out some different ideas. And we, were, we both had backgrounds in microfinance. Mm -hmm. So the idea was born from, Jonathan said, hey, what if, we put a catalog full of basic goods under the in the armpit of the microfinance loan officer as they ride out on their bikes to the to a village, and then the um, borrowers in the village can place their orders, and then when the loan officer comes back the following week, he or she can bring the the goods. And so, I thought, huh, that's interesting. Right. Um, let me noodle on that. Do you mind if I take that idea and kind of go do some homework on it? And he said, sure, sure, sure. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything with it. So, you know, go for it. <laughs> so I then spent, you know, probably a good year just like talking to everyone I could think of who would be remotely kind of in the idea of like fast moving consumer goods in rural places mm -hmm. in East Africa. and. Um, and sort of fleshed out the business plan, which is what Copia became, which is quite different than what I just described to right. you. We did not work with microfinance organizations, um, at least at the beginning. Um, we instead kind of focused on the, you know, learning everything there is to know about how e-commerce is working in more kind of wealthier geographies in more developed economies where there are things like, you know, like the U.S. postal system. Mm -hmm. Amazon was born because the U.S. postal system worked really exactly. well. Right. Yeah. There, there is no postal system. There aren't even addresses in East Africa. Right. right. So we sort of had to take a blank piece of paper and kind of throw out the all the preconceptions about what e-commerce is and start with a blank piece of paper of what does e-commerce mean 
or how would we design it with a blank piece of paper for this particular demographic in this geography, in this part of the world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about our customers don't have addresses. They don't have internet access. You know, they're not sitting down to laptops at their desks, right? right? They don't, most of them don't have smartphones or if they do, they can't afford data. So where's the, right? e, and many where's are, the e in all this? I'm waiting for the information. Right, exactly. <laughs> many of them are, are unbanked, right? right? So so how do they, how do they connect with us to order things? How do they pay and how do we deliver? Like all the ingredients that makes e-commerce work are basically missing, <laughs> right? right? So, so the way Copia works um, to address all of those challenges is we said, okay, first of all, let's start with the, this customer, the world is largely neglected. Mm -hmm. The world is largely said, oh, there's no, that's not a consumer I can serve right. profitably. So, so I'm not going to go after that market. But we looked at them and said, they are spending more than a trillion dollars a year on household goods, just like I do for my house and they um, deserve to be empowered global consumers. So let's figure out how with the advent of all these mobile technologies that have hit the scene, how do we reach them in a profitable way? So the way Copia works is we go out in an area that has a relatively high population density of middle to low income people. We recruit an existing shopkeeper in that area mm -hmm. So somebody is already running a fruit stand mm -hmm. or already running a hair salon or already running a fast moving consumer goods shop. Mm -hmm. And then we give them the app. They, they upload the Copia app to their phone or we provide them with a phone with financing that means that they then have the Copia app. We also literally give them a paper catalog, like 1880s technology, awesome. a paper catalog <laughs> as well. Stitch it together. So they have both. Yeah. So then they are uh, an order point. So, so customers in their area can then go to that shop to place the orders through the app. Or if they're uncomfortable with the app, they can use the paper catalog and the agent can place the order for them through the app. So we've essentially said, we are a technology company. We are an e-commerce company, but our end consumer doesn't have to be tech enabled, right? If they are, great. If they have their own phone and want to order directly, directly to, to Copia Super. And lots do that. Um, or they can call us or text message or, you know, whatever interface they prefer. But there's always an agent in the area to serve as that order point. So then we get the orders. We have relationships with the suppliers of the goods um, in our fulfillment center in Nairobi. And also I should mention we're also in Uganda, so in Kampala as well. Um, and then we have a whole fleet, like there is no U.S. postal system or Kenyan postal system or Ugandan postal system to rely on. So we built our own delivery system. Mm. So we have our own fleet of trucks. Um, and so we deliver to those agent shops. Um, essentially, we promise the customer every two days. So if you place an order, you'll get, the, you'll get your, your delivery within two days. Nice. That's cool. And the deliveries go to the agent shop which is safe, secure, reliable. Known we, quantity. We know. Yeah. Um, and so the customers who live, you know, within a kilometer of, of, an, of the agent shop then get a text message saying, hey, go pick up your order. So that way we, you know, we can 
we basically designed a model that works in an African environment for this um, kind of unique demographic. I love it. It's so, it's amazing. And, you know, so many questions. So when was it founded? When, when, when would you consider was your founding date, year, or month? And describe the distinct stages of the company's evolution. Okay? So walk us through like here was phase one, phase two, phase three, and whatever. Right. So um, let's see. So I remember um, I gave birth to my middle child in 2011, and that I was sort of steeped in the business plan, writing, modeling, figuring out kind of a board of directors, figuring out some angel funding, you know, so that was sort of the pre-launch days. Mm -hmm. And then the business sort of officially, we, we, we started a pilot. So kind of phase two was a pilot in 2013, um, which was, you know, our CEO on the ground in Nairobi um, borrowed his dad's station wagon, which is our first delivery vehicle. Awesome. <laughs> and we had 20 agents that year. Um, and since we didn't have much else to do, we could deliver same day, wow. right? We'd get an order <laughs> and we'd go, we'd go buy the product off the shelf of some store in Nairobi, put it in the back of the station wagon and then like drive it to the agent shop that day because we could, you know, <laughs> and it was really about learning what yeah. customers needs were right it was about listening to the customer mm -hmm. what were they buying mm -hmm. what did we what were we not selling that they wanted us to sell and you know what was the delivery experience like how do we do that in a way that's safe and secure in in um in you know the african context and um and then so that was that was 2013 that was kind of phase two in 2014, I would say, is when we actually probably launched the business. Mm -hmm. We said, okay, now we need to build the technology behind all of this. We need to actually build the supply chain. We need to actually build relationships with the suppliers of the products. We need to actually start building a fleet of trucks to do the deliveries. Uh, we need the user interface for customers to be friendly. Like when we started building the app, you know, we did things like we had a shopping cart, we had a little, <laughs> you know, little question mark in a circle, right? Like all right. the, all the icons that we are. Yeah. Yes, standard and UX. We launched it, right? We launched it with two agents. And then um, our CEO, Crispin said, nope, we have to stop, 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 stop. <laughs> I mean, it was such a massive failure <laughs> that we had to go completely, we had to throw it out completely, right? All our preconceptions of what e-commerce looks like, we had to throw it all out and start over. Mm from our customer's perspective right. and just listen to the customer and what would make sense to them as the user experience. That was a huge lesson. Um, so 2015, we raised our series A, mm -hmm. that was exciting. Um, and then I would say we had, um, the next chapter was sort of about growth, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a lot of experimenting and growing we do a lot of, um, of lean startup type experiments mm -hmm. to, to learn and kind of get to get the model right. 
And then um, I think the last, the, the most recent chapter then is in 2021, we launched Uganda. So that was our, the beginning expansion. of our inter international expansion. Yeah, which is the chapter we're in now. So expanding into um, multiple markets across the continent. Fantastic. So stuff numbers. So uh, size of the organization, um, what's your headcount? And then I guess your, your business model and, and volumes, like how do you measure, how do you measure success? How do you make money? Uh, yeah. So we have about 1200 employees now. Oh my God. That's amazing. Are you counting yeah. the agents as, as employees or those are just. No, uh, we have about 35,000 agents. Oh my goodness. Fantastic. Across mm -hmm. Kenya and Uganda. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's pretty, pretty exciting. Um, because a, a lot of, um, I mean, a, the opportunity is there, right? right. So we're growing like mad. But B, it's also about scale. This the business, the economics fly right. um, at scale, right? Because you get better unit economics. To speak about unit economics, mm. like we pay, you know, Unilever for a, you know, a, a, a you know beauty product or whatever. They give us the, a price that's a wholesale price mm -hmm. or manufacturer price. Mm -hmm. Right. And then we sell it to our customers at market. Mm -hmm. We try and be the lowest price in the market mm -hmm. or match the lowest price in the market. And the difference between those two numbers is the margin that we live on. Right. Mm -hmm. So that gross margin, then we have to make sure we can right. cover our delivery costs and, and so forth. So the bigger we get, the better prices we get from the manufacturers. So that's how we increase our margin. We're not increasing our margin because we're selling to our customers at a higher price. To the contrary, it's keeping those prices as low as we can for our end consumer, um, but getting better, paying lower prices to the to the manufacturers. Fantastic. So I'm sure you know you know Trigger Foods very well. I'm sure they've gone to the B two B model of what you guys are doing. You you went B two C and you went rural. Um, very different. Uh, and you figured out how to increase margins in a very, what could be potentially very uh, competitive margin space, right? If you if you're not kind of taking advantage of it. This is a question: What's what's your view on on where the opportunity? Obviously, the opportunity lies with you guys. I don't know how to ask this question, but what's your view of their model? And you know, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's a really good question. I think there's a lot of um, I've always thought that the the B two B you know services to improve SME operations and you know access to inventory and um, improving those supply chains. Um, I, I think that it's a it's a perfectly good business model, and you know there you see them popping up uh, across the across emerging markets across the world. Um, it's definitely not like Copia definitely does a lot of B2B. We provide a lot of the same kind of B2B services to our agents. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, like inventory yes. loans, yes, yes. So they can stock their shelves mm -hmm. with Copia products mm -hmm. and, and things like that. We, um, we are very similar in that regard, but I think that the real gold is consumer. the relationship with the end consumer. Mm -hmm. That's always what's gotten me out of bed in the morning mm -hmm. is empowering that end consumer, mm -hmm. understanding that end consumer's needs, unlike anyone else in the world, mm -hmm. 
and and meeting those needs, delighting that customer, having just a relentless focus on what we can do to better their lives. Mm -hmm. um, because then you have not only this treasure trove of really valuable data about that end customer, but you build loyalty. Right. And then once you have that loyalty, then it's about extending what you do beyond basic household goods into other areas where we can um, offer them products and services. And because we're often their very first experience online mm -hmm. or with a with an app um and certainly with anything related to e-commerce if we become that trusted gateway then you can imagine the power we will have to offer other products and services pharmaceuticals or you know we're starting to provide embedded finance products and that kind of thing so the extension of what we do if you have that trust and you have that loyal relationship um, and we just focus relentlessly on how we can delight this customer, um, I think that's an incredibly powerful and valuable service to provide. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's, you become the gateway to, to the internet in a, in a very real way other than maybe social. But yeah, fantastic. So we talked about you mentioned your, your Series A fundraising, which is kind of the next subject matter here. So all in all, you've raised 83.5 million in funding. Uh, you're a prolific fundraiser on all sides, I would, I would say. Uh, I believe some charity work, well, with four charity, you did charity, right? And um, helps nonprofits you know, do that, I try, try to do that. Political campaigns, um, uh, I saw that you are uh, this is Clinton's, Hillary Clinton's top 100 fundraisers at some point in 2016 for our special <laughs> campaign. That's yes. fantastic. And then venture also. What? And and so what makes you such an effective, you know, fundraiser? What is it that you, why, how do you do this so well? Well, I think I'm sort of, you know, unafraid to ask because I, I think if you believe in what you're fundraising for, you can sort of flip it around and think of it like I'm doing you a favor, giving you the opportunity to participate in this amazing thing, right? <laughs> I love it. And, you know, to have that kind of enthusiasm for it. Like when I was fundraising for Hillary, you know, the premise was like, bring your kids to meet the first woman president of the United States. There you go. Like that was my... That was my marketing pitch, right? That's how I got people to come and, and donate thousands of dollars was, you know, this is a unique moment in history. Right. And like Republicans came, like it was, you know, we worked, right? So I think you, you know, you had to find some, something that makes them appreciate why this is, you're doing them a favor, right? Right. Um, and Copia, it's, you know, it's so easy for me to present the business to mm. an investor because it's such a powerful platform. It is. It is. Both both in terms of a viable commercial business, but also, you know, if you have any interest in impact. Here we go. You know, I mean, both both sides of the coin are are yeah. So it um so when we have about every six months we do 
investor days it used to be in person, but then during COVID times, they, they, we've moved them to zoom and, you know, we, we take our investors through zoom, you know, out in a delivery truck and they go out and talk to agents in the field and talk to customers. And then we walk them through the fulfillment center floor and, nice. you know, they see the forklifts going by and the delivery trucks coming and going and, um, they really feel, and then, and then, you know, non COVID times, that's all done in person. And, you know, it's, it, you can really feel the, um, excitement of Building. the opportunity. Yeah. And you, you talk to the agents and you talk to the customers and, you know, for many of the agents, being a Copia agent means they go from poverty to middle-class. Fantastic. Right? I mean, it's like life-changing mm. for many of them. Mm. Mm. Um, and customers have, you know, similar, you know, kind of impact. They feel the a similar sort of impact of, um, and, and kind of, you know, our NPS scores like 60 in the sixties, right. You know, which is like Amazon, Apple territory. I mean, our customers really feel like Kupi is on their side, I which I think it. is a rare thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, well, you know, one of our, so we have a venture fund and I just have to mention that one of our core tenants, um, in terms of how we, we think about what we would like to invest in is businesses that hold human well-being at the core of their culture and build yeah. from there backwards. And yeah. to me, this is the, the new evolution, if you will, or maybe it's an evolution of where, where capitalism needs to go to develop, to believe that if you, if you focus relentlessly on improving lives through your venture, you will be inevitably successful. I mean, it's because you're in the, you've, you've weaved yourself into like what life is about or what should be, what it should be about in a sense. Yeah. And I think you guys have done that amazingly well. So let's, let's talk about like, I was looking at your, your uh, investors and it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's a differentiated set. Uh, and, and I was wondering what informs your decisions or where to take money. Cause clearly you can take money from, from most many places. So what informs your decision on that? <laughs> well, if you're an African entrepreneur, you take money from anywhere you can get it. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious to a certain extent, but I, I definitely subscribe to the kind of mantra that is, um, you know, you take more money than you think you need sooner than you think you need it. Because especially in the environments in which we work, you just never know what's around the corner, you know, locust storms or droughts or presidential elections or, mm -hmm. you know, global pandemics or, you know, downturns um, in, in, in a war in Europe yeah. that causes you know, supply chain disruptions. I mean, there's just, you just never know what's around the corner. Um, so, uh, but I, I think when I started Copia, the, the response was basically, you're completely insane. That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard was sort of the, that's, I mean, always, I'm that's, always, a, that's always a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, you really have to have some thick skin mm -hmm. when you're fundraising as an entrepreneur, because the majority of the time, you know, 99 times out of a hundred they're going to tell you why your idea is a bad one. And they're going to poke some holes in why it's not going to work. And you have to have the relentless just belief in the idea and the belief in yourself 
that it will, that you, you know, something that they don't know right? <laughs> or they don't get, or, and then you go back and you say, okay, I failed at convincing them. So I have to figure out how do I tell this story in a different way to help them see the light. Right. Mm. But a lot of the initial skepticism was around, you know, how do you deliver? There's no way you could profitably deliver right. to every rural, you know, village in Africa, which we've now proven, you know, our, our economics on delivery are, are, are really probably the, one of the kind of shining kind of success, successful parts of Copia. Um, so we've really kind of knocked that one out of the park, but initially that was the big challenge. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the, um, early capital were, was, were angels who believed in us as a management team who loved the idea, uh, that, you know, well, let's give it a go and just see, you know, mm -hmm. see. And I, I said to all of them, you know, only invest if you're okay with never seeing your money ever again, because there's a good chance that it doesn't work, right? right? right. Like you might be great. It right. might not work. Um, mm -hmm. and, the, and then, you know, over the, the years, you prove out different bits of the model, right? Mm -hmm. you, you prove out that, yeah, delivery works. You prove that there's demand. You prove that, you know, suppliers are giving us better and better prices as we get bigger. You know, all of the risks start falling away. Um, and then there are new risks, like now we'll have, you know, we're going to launch in West Africa and there'll be risks around launching a new market. So, um, um, but a lot of those initial, the, the initial skepticism, ha we've been able to, mm. um, to prove, uh, prove out so, or prove wrong. Mm. Um, and so I think that there was a lot of, um, impact capital mm -hmm. in the early days. Mm -hmm. We still have a lot of this from impact investors because the impact story is so strong. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're at the point now, you know, our next round will be something like a hundred million. Um, so we're, we're now in the world of still, there's still, there's some fantastic, huge impact funds now that didn't exist when I started Copia, but now, um, you know, it's sort of a different world and quite exciting to have these very large impact funds. Um, but we, we very much focus our pitch on the commercial mm -hmm. business mm -hmm. and making sure that investors understand the, you know, the unit economics and the commercial potential for the business and how much opportunity we have to expand into, <clears throat> into new markets. Mm. I mean, we could be, we can be a billion dollar business in East Africa alone, but the potential for the business is certainly across the continent. Fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. You've unlocked something that, um, is, is huge. So company culture, right? 1200 employees describe your company culture and how you know, how have you shaped it and how do you maintain it? Um, so our, our first CEO was Crispin Marrera, who um, ran the business for the first um, uh, I don't know, five years or so. Um, and he's Kenyan and, uh, and I, you know, kind of run the, ran the company with him as mm -hmm. the chairman and the, and the founder. But he's the one on the ground actually mm -hmm. making it happen mm -hmm. and building that initial culture. 
And then Tim Steele, our current CEO, um, who joined in 2017, um, has kind of carried on, you know, building the culture. Um, they set the tone much more than I do day to day because they're the ones on the ground. There's no way like, you know, sure. some girl in London is, is driving the culture on the ground. <laughs> and I would, but, I, but I would I, say- I would have found that very curious how you, how you could manage that. Yeah, and, and a, and a cer certainly a recipe for failure, right? Mm. I mean, they, absolutely, they are the ones running, running the business. Um, Crispin's now our chief marketing officer um, and still very, you know, very much a, the and a senior leader at this, in the C-suite of the business with, with Tim. And they, I think, have done a few things really well. One is to create a real, um, a very open culture, one of, you know, anybody with a good idea at any level, like we want to hear it. Um, Kobe has so much opportunity for innovation, even still, like we're still inventing every day, um, finding new opportunities, finding new challenges, finding new problems to address. And so anywhere in the organization, there's a good idea. We want to hear it. Um, secondly, I think they have done a very good job of instilling this like lean startup idea of, um, running experiments. So someone like, I'll come up with some harebrained idea that I think is brilliant, right? And the team will be like, I don't know if that's a brilliant <laughs> idea or not. <laughs> but do we have to listen to Tracy just because she's the chairman? Um, so we all take in these great ideas and then we'll say, well, let's go run an experiment. And then we'll just take that idea and go run it in a small part of the business with like a handful of mm -hmm. agents or mm -hmm. you know, 100 agents mm -hmm. in one area. And then, and then you see, and you get the data, you get the results and you see if it's a good idea or not. And if it is, then you can roll it out company-wide. And if it's not, then you've only invested a very small amount of resources in a small part of the business. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that has, that um, lean startup approach has helped um, us to stay nimble and stay innovative, even as the company has gotten quite quite big, you know, turning the whole ship at this point is, it's not as easy as it used to be. Right. I would <laughs> right? imagine, yeah. Um, so you, so I think it's really important as companies get bigger and bigger, and then suddenly you're in multiple countries and, you know, communication gets harder and, you know, you, you start having this mindset of like, well, that's how we've always done it. So that's why we do it. You know, you, you really need to have that opportunity for experimentation Fantastic. to, um, to keep that, keep the organization able to innovate quickly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the bigger you get, the slower you get, which is kind of makes sense. Um, and then because you still have that, you still have to maintain that speed of execution in some, somewhere in the DNA of the organization and the operations of the organization. So that, that's fantastic. So lessons learned, things you would have done different. If anything, if anything, like what would you have done different looking back? Is there anything or did, have things worked out perfectly or yeah, what lessons have you learned? <laughs> um, well, things certainly have not worked out perfectly. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's what's sort of fun about it is you, it, you know, it's hard being an entrepreneur in Africa. And I, I, you know, I spent 
I spent decades in Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. I know quite a few entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. I've been an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. And there's this kind of aura about the Valley where, you know, entrepreneurs are, are, you know, really impressive and, you know, to be a tech entrepreneur in the Valley is amazing. And, but I have such admiration for entrepreneurs in Africa. Yeah. They're, they're resilient, their creativity, their, you know, their ability to take knocks and bounce back. I mean, the Copia team, when COVID hit, the Copia team didn't even blink. You're like, great. Okay. No problem. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to tackle it. Here's what we're going to experiment and try, you know, um, they got really innovative. And so I, I just have a massive amount of, um, admiration and respect for, for anyone building in a business in, um, in an, in the African context, yeah. especially because historically we've been very, it's very been very difficult to raise capital in significant amounts. We're seeing that changing by the day, which mm. is incredibly exciting and, you know, and long overdue given the opportunities um, and the, I think the incredible talent that the continent has. So I'm so glad that the capital markets are sort of catching up with mm -hmm. the opportunities here and that will result in more exits and so forth. So I'm, I'm not avoiding your question. I think a big lesson maybe was my, um, I underestimated the, like Cobia needs a lot of capital, mm -hmm. to, you know, we've already mm -hmm. raised 83 million. We're going to, we're going to raise a lot more in the future. Um, it's not, you know, a couple of coders in a, in a basement nice. writing some code and launching an app, it's right? It's a full it's, stack solution. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we have, you know, we have warehouses and fulfillment centers and depots and, you know, fleets mm -hmm. of trucks and, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's got real, it's a real, um, a, a business with that, that has significant cash requirements. And so, um, I think I underestimated the kind of level of interest in, or the, the amount of capital we'd have available to us in the early days, which mm -hmm. fortunately is different now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm not sure I would have changed our trajectory as a result. To the contrary, I think I actually probably, in retrospect, would have grown the business faster sooner mm -hmm. because scale is so important. Mm -hmm. We were sort of, let's stay small and experiment. Let's stay small and build out our, our technology. Let's stay small and you know build out our fulfillment center when the unit economics are driven by scale. Mm -hmm. So I think, in retrospect, I probably would have just grown the business faster sooner mm, mm, very very telling you know as we wrap up here you know uh as we get into our final uh, round of questions here so this is a rapid fire round but you said you admire people building in africa this this, this phrase came to mind and i want to make sure i say it. africa is ground zero for grit for entrepreneurs if you, if you don't have solid killer grit instinct this place will beat your life so kudos to you and the copier team for what you're doing it's 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 amazing but anyway, we'll turn to the rapid fire round questions here. So I'll just say a word and you tell me what comes to mind, right? So um, Africa. Opportunity. Entrepreneurship. Fun. <laughs> With greater teeth. <laughs> um, 2030. Uh, international expansion. Africa-wide. Continent expansion. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I think 2030. Africa comes online in a big way. So we're very excited about that. 
Tracy, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This has been fun, learned a lot, and I hope you had fun as well. So thanks for being on the Chile Emoji podcast. Yes, so fun. Thank you so much, Mark. <laughs>